I'm Melissa Boyles. Welcome to Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. Today, we talk about everything from bugs to grasses, self-driving snowplows, and transforming an organization based on the work of a shame researcher. Don Hood, our guest, is an associate director at the Center for Transportation Studies at the University of Minnesota. While her focus area is development and finance, her background is in structural engineering. Her path has taken a very different turn than she originally planned while earning her engineering degree and becoming a professional engineer. Dawn and I met nearly 20 years ago as part of the second cohort of women to go through the National WTS Leadership Program. Since that time, Dawn has led initiatives, progressed through the ranks at the Center for Transportation Studies, chaired committees at TRB, and balanced it all while being a wife and mother. Dawn's journey also encompasses engaging in a transformational change initiative based on the work of Dr. Brene Brown. So without further ado, let's talk to Dawn. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you so much for joining us for Moving Arizona. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I am so excited to connect with you. We've stayed connected via social, but do you want to share with our audience a little bit about how we first met? Sure. You're going to test my memory of timelines, (laughs) but it's probably getting close to 18 years ago. Yes. Where you and I were part of the cohort for the WTS leadership training. Mm -hmm. And there was a group of, I want to say maybe 30 kind of mid-career women came together for, I think it was three days of intensive professional and personal development. And you and I were part of that great, great training opportunity. I still look back on that. And, and I was actually thinking about it today when we had to write our application. And my intro to that application was something about how women are asked to be part of a keynote speaker. And I hope to see myself through this training in 20 years to be asked to be a keynote speaker. And my mentor at the time says, why 20 years? It should be 10. I'm like, oh, that's too, I can't accomplish that much. Who would want to ask me in 10 years? Well, now we're almost 20 years later and I've been asked to be part of your podcast. So it's all coming (laughs) full circle, right? I didn't think about podcasts 20 years ago in my application. Not sure if they existed 20 years ago when we were writing our applications. (laughs) (laughs) I believe we were only the second group of women that went through the National WTS Leadership Program. And like with you, when I submitted my application, someone from our chapter had gone the previous year and she came back and she was like, Mel, you, you need to apply for this program. You'd be great. And I was like, okay, I can write a submission and throw in my resume. They're never going to accept me. So I don't have to worry about it. But, and then they accepted me and I was kind of dumbstruck that I got selected one. And then I felt like, listening to everyone explain who they were and what they did. Like, oh my God, I don't belong in this room of women. And then I will never forget Deirdre Gabay, mm-hmm. right? 
I had met her a couple of years before, and she had a chapter leadership role with the San Diego chapter of WTS. And I was so incredibly intimidated by her. Like I could barely make eye contact with her. <laughs> we did those stupid personality tests. And we had, remember, we had to go up on the diagram and put where our personalities were. Oh, I don't remember that. Deirdre and I had almost identical personalities, and we have been fast friends ever since. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yes. I love it. I, one of my memories of you, I think we all shared uh, the cab back to the airport. And your son was grade school age, maybe yeah. at the time, yeah. or, or young teens. And here I had this newborn one-year-old. And I remember you telling me about a book about boys and emotion and how it was just so changing for you and, and how to raise a boy to be emotionally healthy. And I went and bought that book and, <laughs> and my son's great kid. So I, I would attribute some of that to you and your guidance. And, and as you said, watching you on social media with your, your family. And, and so I, I love how we can be placed in one kind of situation and how that can kind of flow throughout life and touch we can touch each other's lives in so many different ways that we're not even aware of. And, yeah. you know, a ride, a ride to the airport can spark something that, that makes a difference 20 years later. Absolutely. Well, and then the people that I'm constantly giving reading homework to now can realize that that started like 20 years ago. That didn't, that's not a new thing. <laughs> exactly. So before we get too far along into our interview, as I was explaining in our pre-interview conversation, you know, what sparked the idea of this podcast was for our mentorship program, getting a group of influencers. So whether it's local to Arizona or national, so that we could give them perspective on the transportation industry, you know, people that are really shaping the industry in a lot of different ways. And I think it's important for especially our, our mentorship group to understand that the transportation industry isn't like just engineers and planners. It's this fabric of professionals that from marketing people and communications people and researchers and engineers and planners. And, you know, there are so many different types of professions that are all sort of woven into that industry. And I think it's really powerful for them to hear from people that represent different aspects of the industry. So. I pinged you for one of my national perspective people. And, Thank you. And so for their benefit and the folks that don't know you, because you probably don't have a huge network of people in Arizona. Not too many. My in-laws are there, so hopefully they'll listen along. Would you like to just explain a little bit about who you are and your role with regard to the transportation industry? Absolutely. I have been in transportation since, well, I graduated in... 1992 with a degree in civil engineering and did bridge design for a number of years. And in, in that arena, my network was really small, very technical, and really mostly bridge engineers. And I was looking for something that was more broad and touched more elements of transportation. And I knew a couple of people that worked at the University Center for Transportation Studies and an opening came up and I thought that they like their job and that sounds pretty interesting and very different. I think I'll apply. 
And it was an interesting process and I did not get the job that I had applied for. And they brought me back and said, but we have this other job that we think you'd be really good at. Are you maybe interested? I'm like, sure, why not? And now I've been there more than 20 years and have just kind of moved through different different roles. So the Center for Transportation Studies is at the University of Minnesota. And we are what I like to call the hub of transportation research, education, and outreach at the university. So if you have a research need or you want an event, we can be that neutral convener to bring different stakeholders and interested parties together to share information, facilitate dialogue. And then we do a lot of training for professionals, practitioners, and more of the local agency, motor grader, trainer, those kinds of um, so all aspects of transportation work. And my role in working at, at CTS, I'm currently one of the associate directors. So I'm the leadership team focused on program delivery, development, and in the financial contracts, the operations side of the business. And what's really great is we get to touch so many different pieces of transportation. So I went from this really narrow bridge design now everything from bridge design to connected vehicles to what kinds of grass should you plant along the roadway so it doesn't die from all the salt in Minnesota that we have to use to de-ice our roadways to transportation finance and workforce issues. It's fascinating. And what I love about it is I've been able to work at the same organization and have lots of different experiences. And so it's never been the same day or the same topic in the 20 years that I've been there. And if you would have asked me 20 years ago, would I be working at the university? I'd say, no way. What would I do? And it's been a great fit. So taking that risk was big for me because it wasn't what I had envisioned. And it's been a wonderful experience. So can you explain the role of research to transportation? Well, one thing, if I go back to when I came to CTS, I was a very typical, very linearly thinking engineer and very black and white. So I came and the program I was helping was looking at intelligent transportation systems, ITS. And we were working at the university on a snowplow that would drive itself. And back then I said, well, that's not possible. You can't do that. I had to see it to believe it. And then I got in the cab of this truck and watched it drive itself. And it was really assistive technologies because of the legal worries. So it really wasn't a self-driving vehicle at that time, but essentially it could. And it just made me realize, wow, there's so much to be learned if I open my mind. And, And when people say, what if? or we could do this to say, let's see what can happen. That was really important. And I think that's important for the transportation industry. If there are more people like me to have that broader perspective. It's the research that's really informing policy and technology and the decisions that are being made at the policy level in the agencies. They're then coming down to practice. And the most successful agencies and transportation owners are those that are being informed and moving forward through research. 
And, and that's where we're seeing the power at, at the University of Minnesota. We have strong relationships with our DOT and our local agencies. And when we have that cohesion where the researchers and the practitioners can connect and talk about issues and ideas and needs, it's really powerful. And, and if I link back to something that you had said earlier, what's really been interesting and powerful over the 20 years is it used to be very siloed. When you thought transportation, it was civil engineering and planning. And they didn't usually work together. Planning projects and engineering projects, pavements and bridges and traffic. And in the 20 years that I've been there, one of the things CTS has done is help build interdisciplinary teams. Now is a big deal for a university 10, 15 years ago. And now it's the norm. And, you know, we have people from public health and entomology. You know, you got to think about even bugs and grasses and planning and law and all the different disciplines. We help bring them together and research projects and transportation practices are better because of it. And so I would encourage everyone out there, find a university that that's that you're near. And and nowadays, with everything being remote, you don't even have to be near. You can sign up and be part of the Center for Transportation Studies. We do webinars and lots of different activities where you can hear from researchers about the work that's going on. You can participate in those discussions. You can think about how can I use this information and implement it into the work I'm doing now and into the future. And it just helps us approach, I think, our work, obviously, in a more innovative way. It just gets us out of our regular way of doing business. Uh, Again, I'd encourage everyone to look for opportunities. I didn't see that as a young professional, that I should go to the university and think about research. I wasn't a researcher, so why would it matter to me? Now, on the other side, I can see it, it matters, even if it's just having that little bit of knowledge of what could be, what's in the pipeline of innovation and discovery, you're going to be one step ahead when it gets to you, know what to do with it and to be able to think about how to implement that. I think it's interesting, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when you thought about research, there was this idea of people in a bubble in their own little vacuum and not really engaged with industry. But the reality is, especially with how quickly technology is evolving and our communities are evolving in ways that were completely unanticipated, present environment included, it's really just a structured process to explore what if. Yes, exactly. I think that the connection between practitioners and agencies that are making the decisions and linking it back to universities and researchers is really powerful. And it's really hard. The cultures can be so different between the academic culture and the agency culture, for example. Some of the work we've had to do is be that translator. For example, if you get an advanced degree at a university, you defend your thesis. That's the language they use. You present it, people try to poke holes at it, And you defend why you did the work that you do. We talked about that early on with the DOT staff 
And they kind of were shocked. And one person said, well, we don't even like to do performance reviews because we don't want to give anybody criticism. Whereas the university, that's what they're thriving on. Give me that feedback because I can make it better. So these two cultures, just in that one little example, were so different that they didn't know exactly how to work together. They would maybe misinterpret what was being said or offered. And for CTS to step in and help build those bridges was really important. Not every university has a CTS or, or an organization or a group that can help do that. So that's something else to be aware of, that it's important. It really adds value. And the work to get there can't be brushed off or ignored. And I would encourage those listening to see how can they step into that. I know that some people have that really strong skill set that can be that facilitator and that bridge and that there might be a role for you if if you're working for an agency or private sector and have that opportunity to say, hey, let's bring in the university. Let's see where we can partner with them and make this a more robust program or idea. We recently had a collaboration with the Arizona State University, one of our light rail projects. My company, Jacobs, we're the design lead for a light rail extension in the northwest part of the Metro Phoenix area. And the team came up with an idea of using fiber reinforced concrete instead of rebar and we approached ASU and they were all over it. They were so excited to, you know, kind of push the boundaries, push the limits of what we thought was possible, and then to push the limits of what we thought was possible. And there is a very real chance that we would will be implementing this on that particular project and it could save a ton of time and money for basically at the end of the day, the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And that's another great point that the university isn't typically in the position to implement the research. So having that strong connection with the DOT or the private sector is critical in helping get the research out, as they say in quotes, in the real world and off the shelf. And it can happen organically. It happens more effectively if we have those partners involved along the way and to help see how can we put this in place. We're lucky in Arizona, our transportation industry has really strong collaborative relationships with the universities, Northern Arizona University, Arizona State University, and then University of Arizona, which is in the southern part of the state. So there have been some great things that have come out of working together as industry, everything from, you know, construction related to planning and design so it's, I think, something that's, that certainly benefits our industry here. Can you share a little bit about some of the things that you guys are looking at now? Sure. Let's see. Well, connected and automated vehicles are obviously a hot topic everywhere. And as I noted, we've been doing the technology side for a number of years and have had technologies that have been used for driver assistive systems in Minnesota and Alaska, and other states that have low visibility situations. And we've also have a really strong planning and policy group that's talked about some of the policy-related issues. That's been going on for a long time. So there's been a natural progression now that there's connected and automated vehicles. And we're one of the leaders that are looking at the issues related to northern climates. 
the cold really wreaks some havoc in some of the technology that's currently being used. The low visibility situations, light out conditions, the technology isn't quite as effective in those situations. So that's an area that we are leading in and doing work in related to connected and automated vehicles. We have done a lot of policy work related to equity and different transportation policies. If it's privacy issues like user fees and policies maybe related to funding, we have strong research in structures and materials and pavements. So I don't know about in Arizona, but potholes are an issue in Minnesota. The freeze thaw, we've got issues every winter. So there's constant innovation and look at how can we have better materials that will either withstand the temperature swings in Minnesota, or we can patch them in an effective way so that it'll last until they can put stronger, longer lasting solutions into place. We have here in Arizona, the Maricopa County Department of Transportation. So our, our county DOT has really been a leader in autonomous and connected vehicles. They have a test site in Anthem. Jennifer Toth, the county engineer, the director over the, the county DOT, and she's been leading the charge on for us on that front. Wonder though, you were talking about the whiteout situation, like when it's snowing. So we have northern Arizona is about the same elevation as Denver-esque. Sure. Yeah. So we have high country, we have snow and snowstorms and and that kind of thing. But one of the things that really hits the central and southern part of the state are these giant dust storms. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so I wonder if the technology where you have the zero or very low visibility might be something that would be applicable in a situation like that. It would. Early on, we were also looking at situations where there were forest fires and the smoke and you couldn't see. So anytime you can't see, and again, this is early on in our testing years ago, the first responders didn't quite trust the technology. And we have a race track up here that we could use as a test track. So they used a state patrol vehicle with the technology and it, ours is GPS based mm-hmm. and they blacked out the windows and State Patrol drove with this technology around the racetrack at very high speeds. And they were convinced that it worked. That helped us move forward a little bit. Seeing is believing again, right? Just like I had to see it to believe it. So yes, if it's dust storms or smoke or or snow, some of the technology now is using vision to make sure the car is in the right location. Well, if you're not able to see a line painted along the side of the road, you're not going to be able to use that technology. So is there something that's happening with GPS or other technologies? That's where we can focus at in Minnesota because of the whiteout conditions. Interesting. I just want to put a plug for one other research program at the university that is within CTS, and that's our accessibility observatory. And we are looking at access to jobs via vehicle or transit for walking and biking. And we do a national study every year. We put out a report that shows accessibility in major metropolitan regions and can kind of map if you've made investments in your transit ways as that provided more accessibility to the jobs or people in that area. And we are seen as some of the leading experts in that area. I just saw an article about using transportation research to help create socioeconomic opportunity for people. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it's right along the lines with what you were describing your research has been. 
Yes, that's one of the ways it can be used. For example, with COVID-19 restrictions here in Minnesota, the, the transit system was significantly reduced in the, the frequency and the, the lines and making decisions on how to keep options open safely. And one of the things we can work with our Metro Transit leadership is to map where those decisions, how did they impact accessibility and were they done equitably? So we know that in Minnesota, we have some population that are transit dependent. And by making those changes, were they able to get to the doctor or to the grocery or to places they needed to go? Even if they were able to work from home, maybe they still needed transit to do other required activities. And our accessibility observatory would be able to do a scenario and check the before and after and the accessibility to see how those changes were impacting positive or not. And then that helps inform future changes as they continue to adjust the schedules throughout this time. So is it part maybe like a modeling process or a scenario planning where they look at potentially a reduction in a line or frequency or or something of that nature, and then they can assess based on the demographics? Yes, I think you should have Andrew on to talk more (laughs) (laughs) before I before I say more than I know. But the short answer is yes, they're able to do different scenario plans. They can model what they try to do, at least on the transit side, is take the actual routes and the schedules and plug them in. I suppose part of the scenario planning, if they wanted to try a different route plan, they so they have the, the basic model and methodologies figured out and then running the scenarios are based on each agency's needs. That's exciting because I mean, you look at the drop in ridership as a result of COVID. And for example, in Arizona right now, we're one of the worst hotspots in the country, if not the world. And the confidence for people to continue using if they have a choice or to consider possibly eliminating altogether using public transit, it's a very real consideration because how do you maintain social distancing? How do you ensure that everyone is wearing a mask? Um, And so as we're looking at potentially reducing our transit service in some capacity because ridership is slow to come back, perhaps being able to do an assessment of what those impacts would be, especially for the transit dependent, I think would be critical to making those decisions. Well, you think like a researcher because we do have a a researcher who's doing a project, kind of a a small project about that topic exactly here in the Twin Cities to get a sense from transit riders. What will give them confidence to go back to using transit? It's both transit dependent and riders that have a choice. What needs to be in place? Will they go back? Will they choose to get in a car again where they weren't before? So so that research will be starting soon here in Minnesota. Our friend Kellyanne Gallagher, the executive director for the Commuter Rail Coalition, has been having conversations and they are working as a group to talk about what are those impacts to commuter railroads Mm -hmm. and what steps do they have to take to instill that confidence in being able to gain their ridership back. And they know that they will get ridership back, but to what level and then how do you maintain that? It's one of, I think, the biggest challenges coming out of what we're dealing with right now. Right. So you mentioned that there's a research arm, but then there's also a training 
arm of what you all do. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Sure. We have really kind of two elements of our training. We have the local technical assistance program. The LTAP program for the state of Minnesota is housed at CTS. And that's providing training, technical assistance, and resources to local transportation agencies, cities and counties. A complement to that is our customized training, which are topics that are needed by different agencies, primarily MnDOT, the Department of Transportation. And topics I can think of right now, we have training and partnering, but it's called both sides of the fence. How do we have consulting and the DOT, how do we help that relationship and and work through the different consulting activities and partnerships be stronger? And we've helped on those topics over the years. But more typical would be something like complete streets or how to build roundabouts. You know, very technical kinds of topics that the DOT maybe has new processes or procedures or finding that more of their staff or the consulting staff needs to be trained on. So they're all working on the same page. And so they will hire us to develop the training and offer the training. So it's very fluid, depends on what's the hot topic at the time. You were mentioning some training that you all have undertaken as an organization related to Brene Brown. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I am a huge fan of Brene Brown. I am addicted to her books. I've read every single book multiple times and listened to them on audio because I like listening to her tell her story. So she had a message for each one of the books, but then I like to go back and read it in hard copy so I can take notes and come up with my, this is how I'm going to apply it in my life or in whatever situation, right? Mm -hmm. But I know she has formal training programs for leadership and collaboration and things like that, but you kind of have the opposite experience. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Yes, I'd love to. I have drunk the Brene Brown (laughs) Kool-Aid. So I can talk about my experience, the training that's based on her work for, for days. It's been so impactful. And what I didn't share with you earlier is is how it really got started. It was probably 2013 or 14, what is six, seven years ago. My boss, who's my mentor and friend, we were having a conversation. She goes, "I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of vulnerability in the workplace. Would you go on this journey with me? Sure. I don't really know what that means or what that looks like, but I'm intrigued. So, yeah. And I went back to my office and Googled vulnerability in the workplace. And I think Brene Brown popped up and probably her TED Talk or something. And I looked at it. I'm like, that sounds like what we're talking about. But just kind of filed it in the back of my mind. We didn't really talk about it much after that. Fast forward a few months and I'm at this event and they flash up that says this group is going to do a luncheon series based on Brene Brown's work. If you're interested, you know, sign up. Well, it was in a different, it was too far for me to get to during lunch. And so I I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to go up and talk to this person who I don't know and ask if they do this for companies. And she said, well, we're thinking about it, but we haven't. Let's have coffee and talk about it. So we had coffee and the next thing you know, I'm super excited about it. I take it back to my boss. She's super excited about it. 
And we work with this team of coaches who have been certified by Brene Brown to do her training. And they developed a coaching session for our leadership team. And we called it Leaders with Heart. And it was based on you know, Brene's early work. And it was a, I think, a three-month where we met as a group of six in our leadership team. And when we started it, we knew, they said, if you're going to be vulnerable, it might be uncomfortable. We want you to be open. And it was scary. It's like, I know these people, I trust them, but what are you going to ask me to do? And am I going to be able to do it? And we all luckily jumped in and it was powerful. And to have this group who you trust, have the same language, something as simple as, I'm going to be vulnerable here. If you walked into somebody's office and said that, who didn't know this work, they would say, okay, why are you telling me this? Right? Yeah. You could go into somebody's office and say, I'm going to be vulnerable here. And as a listener, you know, okay, I'm going to be prepared for this. I'm going to give them some grace. You just have a different mindset. And so it was a safe space to be able to practice what we were learning and use language with each other and coach and support. And our staff could see a difference. And they commented and they were curious and they wanted to know more. And so we then decided to use those coaches to develop a program for our full staff. And we called it Cultures with Heart. And we probably went through at least two years of different types of training and different sessions with all of our staff to have this cultures with heart. And again, that's the language we use now consistently of asking for what you need, being vulnerable, being courageous, being authentic, all those core concepts, recognizing when shame is popping up. The things that, that Brene talks about, we are comfortable talking about as an organization. And when my boss and I first started talking about it, it was like, well, can we do this? Because you have to pay for coaches, right? Is it the right use of funds to provide this kind of training? And so it was a risk. And it was probably one of the best things that we've done as an organization. And it's been powerful. We do project management training. We do delegation training. We do all that, you know, how to work more efficiently. This, I feel, may, has made the biggest impact. We have deeper connections. We're able to just get to the root of things. Because it might be about somebody's project management skills, but it's probably about a personal story that somebody made up. Oh, you rolled your eyes at me, so therefore you must be mad. No, actually, I had something in my eye. That's why I rolled my eyes. It wasn't at you. But you walked away with that story. And now you're uncomfortable coming to talk to me. So let's talk about it. I would encourage any organization to think about how you can do something like this. It's those softer skills that are so, so important in relating to each other, relating to the public, our constituents, our stakeholders, our partners in ways that make all of your work more powerful and more effective, in my opinion. Having been part of that initial smaller group leadership team, what was the biggest takeaway for you? Self-compassion and knowing that we're all enough, that I am enough. I might not be the same as other people, but not to downgrade 
what I can contribute and the strengths of what I offer. And a lot of women maybe doubt, like, like I shared with you, when you contacted me to be on this podcast, my first thought was, what do I have to offer? I'm not somebody at some big, powerful position who would want to listen to me. And then little Brene on my shoulder. <laughs> but you do have, you have something to contribute. You have something to share. Don't compare yourself. Don't think you're not enough. And so I think that was probably one of the most empowering and powerful things for me in that initial learning. I took a kind of a refresher based on her Dare to Lead work this winter. Having kind of practiced this and revisited the, the concepts over the years, having this really intense refresher course was really amazing because some of the concepts that I thought I understood three or four years ago, after having lived through some more experiences and seeing it again, it was like, oh, now I understand. So I've had newer aha moments in the last six months taking the training again, which was really interesting and again, very empowering and powerful just to be able to recognize the growth and see where I've made progress and then see where I can, I now have a deeper understanding that I can go and make different and additional progress. And that, that's exciting to me. I can remember when I was, when my son was young, a toddler, and it's exhausting. And I remember thinking, can I stop growing and developing? Can I just be okay? Because it's too much work. And now he's almost out of the house. And it's like, now it's really exciting to keep growing and learning. And the exhaustive part of being a young mother of a young child is gone. And I can refocus on me. And Renee has helped me do that or her work has helped me do that. I have to apologize. I find it shocking that you would say that that was what your takeaway from your initial training was because you are one of the most accomplished people that I know. I mean, you've led major activities for TRB, you do public speaking, you facilitate stuff, you have this fantastic education, you work for a research center. And for someone like you to feel like that was your takeaway it's mind boggling, not in a sense of coming from a place of judgment, but you, we all carry around with us, no matter who we're looking at and either consciously or subconsciously comparing ourselves to. A lot of the time as women, we never feel like we're enough. We've never feel like we've done enough or contributed enough or are smart enough or well-read enough or well-traveled enough or articulate enough or skinny enough. Exactly. And yet we look at somebody else and say, oh, Look at Melissa. She started a podcast. Well, I want to be like her. I could not do what you're doing. It would not be a good fit for me. So why should I aspire to be something that isn't who I truly am? So owning that, I think, was part of that power to say, yeah, I admire Melissa for creative and amazing things that she's done. I wouldn't like that. What you like is doing these really cool spreadsheets. So own that. And do the best spreadsheet you can do. <laughs> and that was, it was hard for me because it's the shoulds. What do I think people expect of me? And because I maybe aren't interested or don't really, doesn't, it's not the right fit for me. Well, I should want to be the director of our center. But really, that would not give me energy 
I'm really good at being in charge of our operations and our systems and thinking very strategically about things. Politics and the political side, I don't care for that. So to say, oh, I'll have to go for that job someday because that's what's expected of me. And I don't know that I would enjoy it or I'd be very good at it. Those are the kinds of of comparisons that would go through my head. So taking that Brene Brown philosophy and, and letting go of that to say, it's okay if you don't want to be in politics and worry about the political aspect of transportation. Don't force it because it's not going to be good for you. So what is good for you? Take hold of that and run with it. That's been really powerful. I'm not saying that I still don't do those comparisons and still have those thoughts in my head. They happen all the time. I'm much better at catching them. That to me is where the power is. Catching it happening and being able to give myself a different voice and a different narrative and really that self-compassion, giving myself grace and being comfortable in my own skin. And if more people could experience that, that's what I would wish for others. It was just really, as I said before, empowering and freeing to feel comfortable making decisions and not worry about what other people think or that I'm not meeting their expectations. Or that we're not somehow meeting our own expectations as we compare every aspect of our life to someone who that aspect for them may be a strength. So I don't have the physique of a fitness model and shame on me. I don't have the technical mind of an engineer, shame on me. I don't have the writing skills of an author, shame on me. We carry all that around with us sometimes where the exercise, I think, of catching yourself having those thoughts and choosing to change that narrative, that in itself is incredibly powerful. Absolutely. The other, I guess, takeaway one of our coaches kept reminding us that we are feeling humans who sometimes think. We do Myers-Briggs at CTS. So I am on the Myers-Briggs scale, thinker, not a feeler. I have feelings, but my tendency is to really base it on data and information and think it through. So I probably won't ask you, what do you feel about this? I'll probably ask you, what do you think about this? So she kept reminding us, we're emotional beings. Emotions are there. Pay attention to the emotions. That was foreign to me. I'm like, what do you mean? Listen to your body. No, I don't know what you're talking about. So again, once you start paying attention, it's like, oh yeah, I am feeling a little anxious. My breathing is weird. My fingers are tingling. What does that mean? There's an emotion bubbling up. I used to ignore it and try to go to just the thinking piece. That helped me in trying to be more empathetic. That's not my strength because, again, I'm going more on the data and knowledge, the information. So putting myself in other shoes, being more empathetic, helping strengthen my listening skills, that has also helped me maybe give myself grace, but then give others grace too. Like you said, oh, I'm surprised that that's what you thought was your answer because I see you as this. And it helped me realize that what I see on the exterior of a person doesn't tell me everything that's going on behind the scenes, you know, behind the curtain. And this concept of, do you believe that everybody's doing the best that they can? 
And I truly believe that most people aren't going to just try to do a bad job. So stop judging them. Try to give them the benefit of the doubt and understand what's happening. What, what are they dealing with that is maybe not allowing them to do the best work that they can? That's going to be something that I will always have to work on because my tendency is more on the thinking side. And doing this coaching really has helped me become more aware. Again, another awareness piece. And I think helped me slow down and and pause more before reacting or coming up with an answer is to step back and listen more. That's been another powerful takeaway for me. So as we're nearing the top of the interview here, thinking back on your career that has taken probably a very different path than you anticipated 20 years ago or ask when we were in leadership program together or as you were coming out of university or what have you, what kind of advice would you give back to people that are entering the industry or fresh out of school, our mentorship group, particularly? We were both young WTSers at one point trying to figure out our way in the industry. So what would you share? Well, I've often struggled with this concept of having a mentor because it always felt really formal to me. I need to contact somebody and ask them to be a mentor. And so I would say, oh, I didn't, I never did that. I didn't have any mentors. And now I can look back and say, oh, look at all the mentors along the way. Maybe it wasn't formal, but there were people that have been supportive, offered advice, opened a door. Pay attention to that would be one of my pieces of advice. Somebody is offering, don't question, do you deserve it? Take advantage of it. And it it might be something as simple as come sit at the table with me. That's huge. That's huge. Being invited to the table. Now, tying it back to the, the Brene Brown work, having close coworkers or just a cohort of professionals that you trust that you can be vulnerable with and take and provide feedback with has been critical. I am I'm so fortunate that four people I work with, the leadership at, at the center, we have really strong personal and professional relationships. We value and trust and respect each other. And having that support available almost every day is a gift. And so to be able to say, being chair of the TRB committee, I don't do research. So when they ask me to be chair, and I go to my friend and I say, why would they want me? And she says, oh my gosh, why would they not? You can offer this, this, and this. So having someone that can see things in you that you can't see in yourself, and on the flip side can also say, did you realize you just did this, this, and this? Yeah. Maybe you want to practice that a little bit better. Being open to that and watching for it and taking advantage of it throughout your career, I think is really important. And then for those of us who have had the opportunity to give back, look for those opportunities. If it's up or down, it doesn't matter. Look for opportunities to to share, help, offer advice, offer support, you know, give that reassurance, give that positive reinforcement. Say it out loud. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we do that kind of gift giving better to our colleagues, our friends? You know, how do, how do we do 
do that to help others around us. Little bits of kindness wherever we can leave them. Yep. You know, you mentioned seeing me doing creative things and that's thinking that, oh, that's not what I can do. I really had to do a little bit of soul searching about this podcast and putting it out beyond the mentorship group because it was a very vulnerable thing. Mm-hmm. I listened to tons and tons of podcasts and I thought, I don't sound like any of them. I don't have that level of production. Every single podcast I could listen to and, and come up with a critique. And then I thought, well, let's just take a step back. Who am I? Mm. I think this is the coolest industry that touches absolutely everything that we see and do and experience in our day-to-day lives. There is not anything that we can look at that is not impacted by transportation in some capacity. And then thinking about all the people that make that work. And then thinking about all the people that I have been blessed to have crossed my path and having those voices shared with other people. And I decided, you know what, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Well, let me say it was very brave. So you should be very proud of taking that step and being brave because it's a fabulous success. (laughs) Even even if it weren't a fabulous success, even if it didn't meet your expectation, taking that brave step is a success. I think everyone should do that. Recognizing what you feel passionate about. It doesn't matter if it's spreadsheets or it's something creative. What is it that you feel passionate about and whether research, you know, engaging your community, leading in some capacity and just do it. Just take the risk, be authentic. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Find your tribe yes. and do yep. it. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. I feel very blessed that you're part of my tribe. So again, thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> thank you for asking me anytime. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Moving Arizona, the podcast for transportation geeks like me who want to hear from the people who are shaping our industry. It was so great to talk to Dawn Hood. She definitely brings some insight with regard to how transportation is impacted by research. And we appreciate her taking the time to share a little bit about her journey and some of the changes occurring as things evolve with the Center for Transportation Research Studies at the University of Minnesota. We wish Dawn nothing but the best, and we look forward to keeping track of what's happening at the center. Next up, we talk to Jessica Fly. Jessica is a project manager extraordinaire from WSP, and we explore career canyoneering. So to find out more about that, join us next time. And until then, let's get moving.